Pastor Peter was wrong. Not all good things need to come to an end. You need to continue to do good in your life, Pastor Peter. Oh, that's the surprise. Hi, Ken. Oh, I love you. All right. Uh, thanks, Julie. How exciting. Um, if you're joining us online, you don't need to adjust your color. Uh, I was in the sun too long, so uh, your red balance is not off. That's just, it's me, not you, if you're joining us online. If you're in person, uh, that's not a mosaic glow. Don't worry, it's uh, just a sunburn. Um, all right, so glad you guys are here this morning. Let's start with our shouts. What do we do? We love God and we love others. What do we say? I love God and I love you. All right, hello, dear friends. We are in our last week of Titus, and we're going to finish how we started by seeing the importance of doing good, by making the importance of making morally right choices in every aspect of our life, outwardly as well as inwardly. Because sometimes we can do all the right things outside, but inside, you know, there's some other stuff going on. But making good choices is all about the inside as well as the outside. But only making good choices as a reflection or a reaction to God's unmerited favor of love for us. So we're going to dive right in today. Uh, we're going to pick it up at Titus chapter 3. If you're following a paper Bible, if not, we're going to have the verses on the board. So uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 is where we're kicking off here. At one time... He's reminiscing a bit. At one time, we too were foolish, we were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, does anyone else, here's a, I always have to confess all my sins to you guys, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, it's the reverse of Catholicism here, uh, pastors get to share. But uh, one of my guilty pleasures, and I've never really told anyone this, but does anyone else like to do those like Facebook quizzes that tell you like what cartoon character you're like or what Marvel hero you're like or what, what My Little Pony person you're like? Uh, my, my daughter was giving me one of those. It was like 45 questions to figure out whether I was uh, Apple Blossom or Shutterfly from the My Little Ponies. But uh, I didn't mind. I really like it. I think they're incredibly fun, uh, like uh, which person I am. Now, the problem was, like, uh, my, I've changed a bit throughout my life. If I had taken one of those quizzes uh, before I was a believer, which Disney character are you, it would have for sure 100% been Scar from The Lion King. Absolutely angry, but not that strong, and not like a passive-aggressive and slightly aggressive and conniving and hurtful and mean and willing to hurt his own family. Like, Scar was it. That one would have come up like 100% accurate for me. But, but things have changed, and, and God has a tendency to change. And so now, if I were to take the Disney quiz, I would get an absolutely different 100% accurate answer, and it would probably be more akin to something like this. That is probably a little bit more where I'm at than skinny, angry Scar. I'm happier, chubbier Pumbaa now. And uh, so what, when I think of, we started with this passage about, he's talking about at one time we were all these bad things, if we could pull that verse back up, and I always marvel at this passage. I look at it and I was like, I'm like, man, that is exactly what I was like. That's exactly who I was when I was filling out that scar, uh, that, that, that scar application there. And I, and I marvel at it because, you know, sometimes things just fit right. And this fits so right where I used to be. Foolish? Man, check. This isn't just like dumb foolish. This is like morally poor choice foolish. That's what that one is. Man, I... I 
I absolutely made so many bad decisions before I decided to follow the Lord. Disobedient? Disobedience like when you know what's the right thing and you don't do it? Man, I got that one all the time. Because I had been to church when I was little. Uh, I, my parents took me to church since I was about five, and, and every time I went to church, occasionally they'd have those, uh, do you want to accept Jesus messages? And man, every time I accepted, I didn't want to go to hell at all. They would always say hell, and hell made me nervous. And so I was like, I don't want to go to hell. So I accepted Jesus, and you know, I'd go back another six months later or something, they'd have another one of those sermons, and, and then I would accept Jesus again. And you know, all throughout uh, my upbringing, I was accepting Jesus every time I had the opportunity. And yet nothing ever changed. I knew I needed God. I knew God was real. And yet I wasn't willing to follow him or obey him. And so that's why it wasn't until college where I really turned my life to him. So disobedient, knowing the right answer and then not doing it, absolutely had that. Deceived, this one is even a little bit passive. I was a deceiver, that's true, but I was also deceived thinking that God wouldn't want me. I spent a lot of time thinking that, that I was, because of these other things, bad things, that I was doing, these morally corrupt things, that, that God wouldn't want me. In fact, that God would reject me. I spent a long time thinking that, that, that you had to be good enough to be a Christian. When I went to church, everybody else seemed so good. They seemed so like, man, of course God likes them. While inside, I was like, man, God can't possibly like me. And the, the reason I never feel comfortable at church is because I'm, I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm, I wasn't even meant to be a Christian because I'm just not that good. Enslaved. Enslaved is trapped and, and unable to free yourself. Trapped in wrongdoing and living in sin and, and wrong living. And then he says there's malice and envy. And I thought everyone had it better than me had more money than me, had more opportunity than me, had a better life than I had. And when you have envy, you always have malice. Malice is, I'm so envious of what you have, I want to I hurt other people. I want to get back at you. Even if I can't get what you have, I want to bring you down. Hating everyone, especially myself, and this characterizes my old self to a T, I... I Absolutely hated everyone except my mama. So I always loved my mom, and I was always nice to my mom and never disobedient to my mom. But everyone else, my, my own sisters, my siblings, my teachers, uh, people that I called friends, um, and myself. I hated everyone. And that doesn't mean that I never spent time with people or didn't talk to them or something. I did, but, but I didn't love them. All I had was hate and anger. And I do clearly remember that time in my life, and, and sometimes we're tempted to block out those times in our life, but I think that remembering where we once were and the reason uh, Paul tells Titus to, hey, we used to be in that space, was because sometimes it's helpful to show how far by the power of God we've come, how, how much different we are in our Disney quiz now than when we first began. Paul reminds Titus that even those, these hapless Cretan people, folks, that they could be reclaimed just as they were by the power of, uh, of God's grace. Remembering where we've come from, it really builds four things in us. To think back of, of where God has drawn us for. The first is gratitude for how God has changed us. I was trying to articulate this as I was thinking about the message, and I I couldn't quite figure out how to tell you how glad I am that God changed me. 
I can't, there aren't words to express how grateful I am to God that he didn't allow me to stay in that place, but rather he, he transformed me. I'm so thankful to God that I'm not that person anymore, but I've changed and I'm different and, and I'm changing even now. That, that I'm different today than I was last year or when I first joined us uh, here at Jericho Road Church. And it wasn't by my own power. It wasn't by my own ability. When I did it on my own, I saw the result. Following Jesus, I see the result. It's because his transformative power in my life. The second thing that we see uh, by remembering how God has changed us is uh, we find humility. Figuring out that, that it was God that changed us, not us that changed us. That's so true with me that it, that it is all God. Any good work of transformation, uh, some of you know me from earlier and, and have known me for some time, any work of transformation that you see today is not because I'm a great person or I have good self-control or I, I just figured it out. It isn't. It is only and solely because of God and His power. So there's humility in that, knowing that I can't fix it. There's not a self-help book that you can read. Unless you count the Bible as self-help, but it's not because it's God help. It's God transforming us. And the third thing we, that happens to us as we remember, it, it brings kindness to us. It brings kindness as we recognize other people that are still in that same place. Maybe you know some people who are acting really hateful. Maybe you so, know some people who are, are really angry and mean and hurtful, full of malice and envy, deceit, all those kind of things. Maybe you got some of those people. But that should draw your heart to kindness to them, knowing the, the distance that I've traveled allows me the patience necessary to let someone else travel as well, knowing that they have their own pace and their own journey. My heart goes out in kindness to people because of God's kindness to me. And I'm not short with them, and I'm not impatient with them, and I don't demand things to be on my timetable because I know it took me a while to change. And so I have kindness and compassion as people are in those processes. I help if I can, and I try not to judge because I, I care about them, because I've, I've been there. And finally, the idea of faith and hope. Hope that God can change people who are still in that place. Never give up on anyone. As long as they're alive, their story's not finished. It doesn't matter how bad they are, how hurtful or how mean or angry, or even yourself. Don't give up on yourself if you find yourself at that place. Your story's not finished. Because you're still alive. And God wants to do a work today like he's been doing all the days past. And so that's what we kind of get from remembering. We, we get humility and, and gratitude, kindness, and, and sort of faith, trusting that God is going to work in those people even if they look like that negative kind of person that we saw in the first verse here. The next section says this. That's how you used to be, but something happened. Thank goodness that there's, there's a but in this sentence. It wasn't, hey, we're all this bad kind of thing, and now you're all hosed. There's another word. It comes here. It says, but when the kindness and love of God, in, in Titus chapter 3, but, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. There were all these bad things, but 
but something happened. The, the kindness and love of God, it appeared to us. It saved us, not because of what we had done or who we were or how we were, but because of His mercy for us. When we were in that place described in Titus 3.3 right before this, we didn't rescue ourselves. We were rescued by the kindness and the love of God. He reached out to us long before we even barely reached back to Him. Our salvation is not based on our works of righteousness, which we have done. Nothing about our actions have saved us. Nothing about what, who we are has caused God to love us. He loves us because of His great mercy. He, God, saved us. Completely and wholly the work of God. It's His mercy that saved us. God saves. We don't save ourselves. This is the essence and the distinctive of the gospel. God knows what I deserve, as do I. Yet, He doesn't give that. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God's favor from which He withholds what we do deserve and gives us what we don't deserve. His, he gives us love and acceptance, not condemnation and separation. He gives us the thing we don't deserve and rejects the thing that we do. God is the initiator, and we just receive from Him before we're ever able to give anything back. This is critical to understanding Christianity. Don't ever try to, to help others or, or be good or or do things by yourself unless you have first received from God. Otherwise, you'll get trapped in what we had seen earlier in this book, legalism, and thinking that the rules will make you right or, or the, doing the right thing is going to somehow please God. It isn't. You've got to receive from God His mercy, His grace, His love, and then react to that. There is a reaction part, but it's only after reception part. It's like you don't get to react to scoring a touchdown if you didn't score the touchdown, right? You can't do a touchdown dance if there was no touchdown. Get the touchdown, then do the touchdown dance. Receive from the Lord, and then do a beautiful dance for Him. He continues on here in, in 3.5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And that's a trustworthy saying. So this first part sometimes is taken as a reference to baptism and, and is quoted in, in uh, support of the idea of baptismal regeneration, which means like uh, I have to get baptized in order to be saved or by getting baptized I get saved. But Paul's not specifically mentioning baptism here. In fact, the only time, other time in the New Testament this word for washing is used, it's uh, used in Ephesians 5 and it's connected to the spiritual cleansing that a believer gets when they're in the Word of God. And so uh, they're, they're not the same sort of use I the use is in the washing not in in like the baptism or in the word in the context of these kind of phrases so the emphasis of this word washing is on the action of washing not the receptacle of washing if that makes sense so it seems that it's not two separate things washing of rebirth and then renewal by the Holy Spirit but rather one and the same thing happening 
all at the same time. So the Spirit is washing us, and that washing is giving us a renewed uh, or a new life. Because if, if water baptism is the means that produces spiritual rebirth, then we have this kind of questionable teaching that there's a material agency as an indispensable means for producing a spiritual result. In other words, something I do then gets me something from God. And then if I, the opposite then would be true. If I don't get baptized, then I don't receive God's grace and favor, mercy, his washing and his renewing. And so that's, there's problematic uh, teaching and thinking that baptism is the thing that saves you. And so sometimes those that believe that would use this verse, but I, I don't think so. I think this verse, those are the same thing he's talking about. The, the washing of rebirth and the renewal is this moment when you receive that grace, when, like you got that touchdown, right? That's the moment you receive that. That's where that comes in. And then there's an outpouring after that. So this verse is really cool, too, because we see the Trinity in here. He, talking about God the Father, saved us through the washing of rebirth from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's doing work. But that Holy Spirit was only enabled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so there's this really cool interaction of the, the entire Trinity in, in our salvation process. And, then, and I, of course, love that verse uh, because I love all the verses because I'm a pastor, right? So I have to. Uh, but this verse is like super refreshing. It's so filled with hope. Like uh, we could spend like three weeks probably just on this verse, so we won't. Um, God is on our side wanting to bring us hope, uh, change, transformation for each of us. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to stress these things. Remember, Paul's writing to his friend Titus in Titus 3.8. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things. That means say them more than once at church. Right? Maybe you have a whole five weeks where you're saying kind of the same thing over and over. And even if the people get a little bored, he says, I want you to get stressed these things. So I'm just trying to follow the word. If it sounds familiar about doing good and, and receiving grace, that kind of thing, it's, it's Paul's fault. He says to stress these kind of things, right? And uh, uh, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God, that's you all, so keep saying these things so the people that have trusted God, you guys, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So our devotion to God is our response to God. Our good for Him is because of His good to us. Receive it, boom, and then react to it. Your reaction or your response is then to follow Him in moral goodness. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Like we never, we, we never can put the cart in front of the horse, if you know that kind of phrase, when it's talking about salvation and grace. So the cart of works never comes before the horse of grace. But in spiritual terms, the horse always has a cart. We're not saying that you just receive and then nothing happens that there is always a celebratory touchdown dance after the touchdown. There is a response. And this verse clearly shows the order of salvation and then do good. We'll be talking about five weeks here. Do good. A pastor and theologian, Stuart Briscoe, says it this way. He was born in 1930. He just died two weeks ago. He says it's like 91 years old. He says this, The theology of Christianity is based on grace. The theology of Christianity is based on grace. The ethics of Christianity are based on gratitude, thankfulness for what you have received. And then this verse tells us, as we do that, the things that you are doing, they're profitable and they're excellent. You want excellent stuff in your life? You want true profitability? 
then devote yourself to God and let flow the good that comes out of that. Look, in life, our people at JRC, you guys are great investors. Uh, I'm not raise hands, but uh, you got a 401k, right? You've got a Roth IRA or maybe a different other IRA. I don't know all the different IRAs. You got one of those. Many of you have bought a home as a good financial investment. Uh, maybe you've made a few more aggressive investment, got some crypto in your portfolio, that kind of stuff. You've got a balanced portfolio, probably some stable. And you guys are great investors, like financial investors in your life. You're really smart about it. But it's not only financial investment. You guys are actually great investors in yourself. Most of our church decided to make the decision to spend your time and energy to go to college. You invested in, in your occupation to get some more training, that kind of stuff. And, and many here have invested even more time than just college. You got graduate degrees, and then you got doctorate degrees. And so you're really good at investing in your education and the, uh, the blessings that come from having an education. And I am extremely confident in your desire and your ability to invest in soul matters because I know that you know that your soul matters. So as wise as you are investment in your finances, as wise as you were in your investment education, the Bible is saying be that wise in your soul invest investments as well. And I, as a church, as, as your pastor, I'm extremely confident that you're going to do this and that you are doing this. Being devoted to good is profitable. It is an excellent investment. So keep it up. Just like your retirement plan, you don't give just one time to your retirement plan. You're like, boom, well, I put $1,000 in there. I'm done. I'm retireable, right? Now, it does build a little bit in 30 years, but not enough to retire on. How do you do your retirement? A little bit out of each check, right? A little bit, a little bit, a little bit over years and years and years and years. And that's the exact same thing with your doing good. How do you do good? How do you honor God? How do you react to God in a, in a pleasing way to Him? Little by little by little by little. Not just one time. Oh, God, I feel it here. Oh, I wouldn't go to one missions ever. Boom, and I'm done. Whew. I did my reaction to God. That was my touchdown dance. It's not. It's, it's over and over. A daily, daily, just like any other investment. But the Bible says this investment is profitable and excellent. It's the best investment that you can make. And, and I'll tell you, I see this all the time at our church. I see you folks coming to stuff, prayer meetings, to events, showing up, blessing one another, inviting people to your home for dinner, going to their home, uh, taking care of people. Uh, I see it over and over and over, your investment in good and trying to change. And, and we have class, and you get to the little class, you're like, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better... I see it all the time. And so as your pastor, I could not be more proud of you. I think our church is amazing at this. And so sometimes the Bible tells you, like, you got to straighten up or you got to change things. But sometimes the Bible says, you're doing this great. Keep it up. And that's, I think, where we find ourselves. You guys are doing great at doing good, at investing in the God things. Keep it up. Keep doing those amazing things. Look, our time in Titus isn't news to you. And it mostly isn't a rebuke to you. But rather, it's an encouragement to, to continue on and to keep it up. And that's what I say. Here's how we're continuing in Titus. Titus 9, it says, 3 and 9, it says, but avoid, there's some things you've got to avoid as you do this. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, arguments, and quarrels about the law. Because those things are unprofitable and they're useless. Like warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. And after that, just have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they're self-condemned. He's circling back to, to some of the issues that he had mentioned about false teaching in the, in the first chapter. And basically he's saying, 
Like, stop majoring in the minors. Don't allow things that aren't essential to derail the work of Christ that's going on in you and in the church. Don't get sidetracked on non-essential things that will break unity, but rather stay with the good. Stay with the morally essential things. If someone always wants to try and divide and separate, uh, then, then all you've got to do is just separate yourself from them. You don't need any drama, no confrontation, no announcements. The Bible says just, just separate from them, and sometimes that's okay. Sometimes there's a season where there's someone in your life that you just got to kind of separate from. It's not that God doesn't love them or something like that, or they're not going to get redeemed, or, or their story isn't over either, but sometimes it's just better for unity and goodness that you just separate from them, and that's okay. If people reject God's truth and insist on unbiblical teachings or, or accusations based on these like minor controversies, then their self-will or their selfishness is ultimately going to make them self-condemned. You don't have to do any of that. And the church doesn't really have to do any of that. that that's between them and the Lord. And so it's okay to say, all right, if you want to act that way in disunity, kind of hurting people, arguing over that stuff, it's cool. I'll see you later. Not make a big deal of it. As Paul wraps up his letter, he has a personal request, because uh, this took place in, in real life, you know, the, the, the Bible. He says, uh, as, I, as soon as I send uh, Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Or do everything you can to help Zena, the warrior princess, I mean, Zenas, the lawyer, uh, and Apollos, the moon landing, but that's not right either. Apollos, uh, Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos, two people in Paul's day on their way, and see that they have everything they need. So here's Paul's personal note, and he reminds them, that this, I, I really like this that it's in the Bible, because it reminds us that what? The Bible is not an instructional manual to you. The Bible's not telling you to go find Paul wintering in uh, Nicopolis right now. Like, we don't need all journey to the Middle East to try to find where Paul's wintering. Not all things in the Bible are about you, and <laughs> this, like, shocker, right? It isn't. The Bible's about God, and... and uh, his working in humanity, and it has nothing to do, this part has nothing to do with us. Except, of course, pastors can always figure out a way to make it have something to do with us, so I have, don't worry. Um, it does, he does speak of making sure that these faithful Christians are, are taken care of, right? So he says, like, oh, and, you know, when uh, the warrior princess and the, the lawyer and those people come to you, like, make sure that they go on their way, but they have everything that they need to succeed, so Zenos and Apollos are ministry people, and he said they're going to come to your church, and after they come to your church, make sure that they go and have everything that they need. And this is fantastic, because like, at our church, this is like a highlight of our church, that, that people come here, they see your goodness, and they always go away better off, especially our missionaries. Our missionaries know that they are seen, that they're prayed for, that they're cared for, emotionally and spiritually supported. You guys know that Tommy and Kumi are coming here, some of our missionaries, uh, just next week or the week after. And I know absolutely 100% confident that you guys are going to go out of your way to make sure that they're blessed, if there's something they need in their home, that, you're, that while they're here, you're going to make sure they have it. If their daughters need something, uh, you'll take care of it. I am fully confident of that because you have done it over and over again, supported our missionaries. And, and as you have with our staff, our staff has found healing and community in you all. You don't make the staff feel like they can't come over for dinner or feel like they're not part of the church where they're working for you or somehow they're, uh, you paid their salary so they've got to be separate or, or there's this distance or barrier. Our church doesn't do that. Our staff who have come here, every single one of them have the same testimony 
that they are better off as human beings, they're better off, off as God followers because of your investment in them. Now, I know sometimes the pastors, we get to invest in you a little bit, but I'll tell you, my investment is 10% out this way, and then I'll be honest, I receive so much blessing from our church. I'm in so much better place as a human being, as a, as a pastor, as a person of God now than I was before I came here. And that's the testimony of every one of our pastors. Even our leadership board uh, noticed it. Last uh, week they were talking about how, how God has really been using our church to refresh ministry-minded people. Maybe they got frustrated or burned out of church and they're just taking a break. And we've seen several over the last few years, many of those people kind of come and take a little season with us, feel a little better, and then go back out to the mission fields or back into ministry. And it's so powerful, the work that God is doing in you as you send out Zenos and Apollos. So you guys are good senders. So, so proud of you again on that point as well. And it just reflects like that you really are following this, uh, the principles that we see here in Titus. And uh, the last verse here it says, uh, our people must learn to devote themselves to, get this, doing what is good, in case you hadn't heard that yet. So that's what we've been saying like for five weeks, right? In order to provide for the urgent needs and not live unproductive life, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Doing what is good. We end with how we began. Paul's concerned that the Christians there might be barren or unfruitful, yet sometimes maybe still think that they're on the right path. And he reminds them that God's path is paved with the good, as we've seen in the last five weeks. God saves us for good. By his mercy, through his grace, we can joyfully follow him in moral goodness. As Paul says, our people must devote themselves to doing what's good. In every situation of life, you can ask, what is the good decision? Maybe you got something coming up. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a business move. Maybe it's a purchase a house, whatever it is. In every decision of life, you can ask God, what is the good decision here? The morally right one, the one that pleases you. In every interaction, we can seek the good words for that other person. God, what can I say to this person that will allow them to be nearer to you than, than when they started talking to me? In every trial or trouble that we face, we can say, God, this sucks. It hurts. It's rough right now. But what is the good that I can see in the middle of this? How can I find God your good in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of blessing, in the middle of conversation, in the middle of work, in the middle of wherever I'm at? And then the final verse ends with grace. He starts with grace. He ends with grace. And that's the facts. Grace needs to bookend our lives our decisions and our thoughts. I would say start every morning remembering God's grace. When you wake up, be like, God, I know your favor is for me. I know you're leaning towards me. I know you love me and you're looking at me with, with eyes of like, oh, I love you. Wake up that way. Wake up knowing that God of the universe is looking at you. He's like, oh, they're awake now. Let's play. You know, like he's looking at you like that. He says, I love you. And then go to bed grateful for God's grace. God, I'm so grateful that even though maybe I didn't live perfect today, yet you still love me as they go to sleep tonight. So how do we respond kind of to God's goodness? 
And we know we can't earn it, we can't repay it, but we can react to it. We can devote ourselves to following in His steps of goodness. We can choose to follow God, to, to follow good. If we're open, perhaps that's our reminder. I don't think for many of us it's the first time seeking God's good. But it's the reminder to seek again God's good. Say, God, I, I want to look to you and, and I do want to do your good in all situations and circumstances. Knowing that we may not be perfect, but we're committed to it because we recognize that God has great love for us. And we receive, then we react. Let me give you a chance to react in worship, but, but I don't want you to react before you receive. So we're going to stand together because we like to do that as we close. But I want you to just take a moment to receive. Say, God, I, your grace is headed this way. I want to receive it this morning again. I want to receive your word that we just saw in Titus. I want to receive that there's a profit, a profitability to choosing good. I want to receive your mercy and your grace again this morning. And then after you receive that, maybe you'll have a response of worship and, and that would be appropriate as we sing together.